Amen. You can be seated, and as you're seated, let me invite you to join me in prayer. As we come, God, before you in prayer together, we thank you that we are coming before the one who reigns forever and ever and ever and who is Lord of all. And so we come today. We come today and we give you thanks for what you've done for us in Jesus Christ so that we could be reconciled to you and so that we could be forgiven of our sins and so that we could have eternal life. God, we praise you. God, we praise you because you are immortal. We praise you because today we know that you are invisible, that you are eternal. You are the ancient of days. You existed before there were days, before there was time. God, you have always existed. And not only are you immortal and invisible, we come before you and praise you today because you are immutable. You never change. You'll never change for the better because you are perfect. And because you are perfect, you will never change for the worse. You will always be what you have always been. And we give you praise today as our God. We praise you because you are I am. You are the one who is dependent on nobody or nothing outside of yourself for your existence. You are God and we praise you today. And we thank you for sending us your son to be our savior. We thank you for coming to us as your son and your son to be our savior. And in Jesus to be the mediator of a new covenant. And we thank you for the blood of Jesus today that brings us peace that brings us peace with you because of the Savior, because of his sacrifice, because of his work as the mediator of a new covenant, we praise you today. And we thank you for this message, the message of the gospel. God, help us today. Help us today to proclaim clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ as we are gathered together here. We have sung about this good news and so help us now to hear through your word the good news of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. God, we want to proclaim your gospel to the ends of the earth. We thank you for Secret Church on this past Friday evening and for those who were able to be here to be a part of that. God, thank you for the extensive and intensive Bible teaching that we heard, and for particularly being reminded and challenged with the truth of the Great Commission. Help us to realize, God, or to remember that the Great Commission is not a general commandment to make as many disciples as we can. It is a specific commandment to make disciples among all people groups. And God, there are many people groups, as we understand what is meant by that word in your word, that have never heard about Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray for those un 
engaged and unreached people groups throughout the world who still must hear the message of Jesus Christ. And so I pray, God, we pray that our church, this church, would play an essential role in completing this task of taking the gospel to every people group in the world. Help us to be a part of this task, God, as a church, by sending many members to unreached people groups and sending more money to reach the unreached people groups of the world. Lord Jesus, we remember that you have said this gospel of the kingdom will be preached among all people groups, all nations, and then the end will come. Our faith then will become sight. And Father, I pray that our church might be more directly involved in reaching the unreached around the world. And I pray, Father, for a potential partnership that we're considering with reaching and teaching ministry so that we can have the opportunity and have help in being directly connected with those who are reaching the unreached and serving them in our church and through our church and through the support. God, as we come now to hear your word, our simple prayer is this, that you would open the eyes of the blind, those who are maybe here today who are still spiritually blind, who do not see the realities that are invisible and eternal. God, we pray today that those who are here who don't have faith, which is the evidence of things not seen, I pray, God, that you would open their eyes and that those of us who have had our eyes opened by your grace help us to see more clearly the things that are true and that are real that we don't see with our senses or see with our eyes or know about with our other senses. God, make those things more real to us as your people today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We are continuing this morning in our study that we've been in for quite a while through the book of Hebrews, and today we come to Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to look at verses 18 through 24. If you do not have a Bible with you this morning, there are Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you, and I would encourage you to take one of those Bibles from under one of the chairs in front of you so that you can follow along as we look at God's Word together today. I want you very much to see that what we're going to be talking about today comes directly from God's Word. If you use one of those blue Bibles, it's on page 1009. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning uh, beginning in verse 18 and reading through verse 24. Our series through Hebrews is called Jesus is Better, and today our message is called the better mountain. And we'll see in this text that this mountain, Mount Zion, is better because of Jesus. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. 
Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I want you with me as we begin this morning to use your imagination for just a minute. Imagine first the calm after the storm. The calm after the storm. The contrast between those two, the storm and then the calm, the contrast would accentuate and lead us to more fully appreciate the calm that is after the storm and that is better than the storm. Let me get you to do that again. Imagine something else similarly. Imagine being in a very frightening situation and then being in a very festive celebration. Again, the contrast between the two would cause us to celebrate and to appreciate even more the one that is better, that came after the other. I say all of that because our text today is fundamentally about a contrast. A contrast between two mountains. We read about the first of the two mountains in verses 18 through 21. And though it's not named here, the reference is to Mount Sinai. Remember, the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrews who had come to faith in Jesus Christ or professed faith in Jesus Christ. They would have known the Hebrew Scriptures very well. They would have known their Old Testament, as we would call it, very well. And so in these verses, they would know immediately what was being spoken of, even though the term or the name isn't given here, Mount Sinai. We heard the reading earlier from Exodus, the account in the Hebrew Bible of this experience And so in verses 18 through 21, we have Mount Sinai. And to characterize that story, that encounter on Mount Sinai, we could call it a very frightening situation. A very frightening situation. And then in the last part of our text, verses 22 through 24... The author speaks in contrast to Mount Sinai about Mount Zion. And based on what's said in these verses, we could call this place a very festive celebration or representing a very festive celebration. 
So again, the message here is about this contrast, and we're given the contrast so that we appreciate even more what came after the first, the first being Mount Sinai, the second being Mount Zion. Now let's look again at verses 18 through 21, and let's think about Mount Sinai, a very frightening situation. Verse 18 says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now let me tell you a little bit about Mount Sinai and about how it is a contrast to Mount Zion. The first thing you need to know is that it was at Mount Sinai or on Mount Sinai that God gave the law. We think, of course, of the Ten Commandments, but it goes beyond that. But the law was given at Mount Sinai. And as we read in the last verse of uh, the first part of our text, Moses was there. Moses was the one who actually went up into the mountain. The people were not allowed to go up into the mountain. They weren't even allowed to come close to the mountain. Boundaries were made that they could not pass Because if they touched the mountain while God had come down, during the time that God had come down to the mountain, they would have to be put to death. Even animals who couldn't comprehend, as the humans could, the need to stay away from the the mountain, they would actually be put to death also. Either by stoning, as we see in our text, or in the Exodus text, it also says, by having an arrow shot through them. The implication seems to be that you don't even want to get close to anyone or any animal that touches the mountain while God is on it. And so to kill them, you would have to do it from a distance by throwing stones or by shooting an arrow to kill the animal. And so this is the picture The law is given, Moses is on the mountain, the mediator of the old covenant, and this mountain points us to that very thing, the old covenant. The first covenant that God made with his people that was never meant to endure, never meant to be his permanent covenant, but it was meant to point people forward to the covenant that he would make through his son, Jesus So, again, think about those three things. The law given, Mount Sinai. Mount Zion, as we're going to see in just a few minutes, represents the law fulfilled. Mount Sinai, the law given. Mount Zion, the law fulfilled. Also think about the contrast between Moses, who's mentioned in the first part of our text, and Jesus, who's mentioned in the latter part of our text. And see the contrast there. The mediator of the old covenant, the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus Christ. And then again, finally, the first mountain representing the old covenant, the second mountain, Zion, representing the new covenant. And if you've been here as we've made our way through Hebrews, you know that one of the primary themes is 
the superiority of the new covenant to the old covenant. The new covenant is better. Jesus is better, and because he is, so is this covenant. And so he's coming back in many ways to things that he's talked about, threads that we've seen before in the book of Hebrews. Now, verse 18 could be easily misunderstood as it begins. It says, for you, he's speaking to these who profess faith in Jesus Christ who are Hebrews, for you have not come to what may be touched. He's talking here about the fact that Mount Sinai was a tangible and therefore touchable mountain. It was solid. It was real in that sense. It was perceivable through the senses. And that's one of the things that stands out in these first few verses. Think of the sight of all that's described, seeing all that's described in verses 18 through 21, hearing all that's described in verses 18 through 21. It was very tangible. God appearing on Mount Sinai and all that took place in connection with that. It was perceivable. In other words, they could touch it because it was physical. The mountain was physical, but they weren't supposed to touch it because God had come down to the mountain. As a matter of fact, you can see those terms, or I can point you to the verses. Verse 18 tells us that it was possible for them to touch the mountain because it was solid, because it was physical, but it was prohibited for them to touch the mountain. Verse 20 makes clear. Even animals were not supposed to touch the mountain. Another contrast that I want you to see before we spend the majority of our time as we will in the last few verses thinking about Mount Zion is this. Verse 21 contains the word fear. Do you see it? The verses that point us to and speak about Mount Sinai have the word fear in them, verse 21. And then look at verse 22 that we're about to read and notice the word festal. So think of those two words, fear and festal. And some of you are saying, what does festal mean? Well, it's the same root word that we get our word festival from or festive a very festive occasion. So we're talking here about fear and joy, celebration. And so with this contrast in mind, let's look together at verses 22 through 24 because this is what we have come to if we believe in Jesus Christ and if we claim to trust in Jesus as our Savior. We have come not to Mount Sinai, but we have come to Mount Zion. Now, we come by Mount Sinai if we're Christians because it's important for us to know God's law and to know God's holiness, which is what's represented in what we're reading about, what happened on Mount Sinai. We need to know God's law. We need to know God's holiness because we need to see that we cannot approach God on the basis of the law, because we are all lawbreakers. We've all sinned against God. 
Christians have not come to this. They've not come to the law. They've not come to Moses. They've not come to or through the old covenant. That's not how we come to God. We can't come to God in that way. So we go by Mount Zion, or excuse me, Mount Sinai, on our way to Mount Zion because we need to see our need for grace, for the new covenant. We need to see that we can't keep God's law and that we haven't kept God's law and that what is before us, if we seek to approach God on that basis, is a very frightening situation. Eternal judgment is what awaits those who seek to come to God through their righteousness, through their law-keeping. Now, we have come to Mount Zion. And again, this is imagery that the writer is using to help his people and the people he wrote this book to to understand the gospel. So notice beginning in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to Mount Zion. And what we're going to be doing for the next several minutes is looking at the seven things that we have come to. And one of the interesting things to notice is that in these verses we're told that Christians have come, past tense, Already, we have come to Mount Zion. Now, as we begin to read the things that we're going to read this morning, these seven things that are connected to Mount Zion, we're going to think, isn't it true that we are going to come to these things as Christians? The answer is yes. We have already come to these things in one sense, and in the future we will come to these things in a deeper and a fuller Sense. Quite often people talk about the now and the not yet components to our salvation. Are we saved now if we've trusted in Jesus? Yes. Will we be saved in the future if we are trusting in Jesus? Yes. And we see this constantly in the teachings of Jesus about the kingdom of God. There's language that Jesus uses that tells us and shows us that the kingdom of God has come. But there's also language in the Bible and in Jesus that tells us that the kingdom of God is coming. So it's both. One of the ways I like to remember this is to remember a candy that I ate when I was young. I don't know if you guys have ever um, been on social media and you've seen someone post something like this. Date yourself. And then they tell you to name something that kind of makes it clear how old you are. Well, I got to thinking about that, and I thought, what if there was a post that said, date yourself, name a candy you ate when you were a kid? Here's the first thing that came to my mind. now Now, most of you won't have any idea what I'm talking about because that's even mispronounced, but that's the way we said it in the South where I grew up. The candy is still around, it's just not quite as popular as it was then. It's actually called now and laters. Does that help? Any of you guys want to show your 
date yourself. Okay, so some of you know nowalators or now and laters, which is actually how you're supposed to say it. Um, it actually, I was born in 1962, and it came out in 1962, so when I was a kid, it was, it was one of my favorite candies, and it's, it's, it's a, um, indiv- individually wrapped pre- pieces of candy that you could buy, it's sort of like Starbursts are now, okay? You know, you've got this sleeve of several pieces of candy, and each one individually wrapped, different flavors and so forth. Anyway, all that to say, that's a good way to think about what we're reading about in this text. There is a now and later, or laters, about our salvation. There are ways in which we have these things now, and there are also ways in which we will have these things later. And so let's look at these seven things that are connected to Mount Zion. First of all, He says, you've come to Mount Zion, and then he begins to describe seven things. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's the first thing. That's the first thing that is mentioned. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, what is this referring to? The heavenly Jerusalem. Zion, by the way, was a hill... And it was part of the city of Jerusalem. It was a part of the city of Jerusalem. It was where David built his throne and established his throne on Mount Zion, a part of the city of Jerusalem. And then David wanted to build a temple for God, a place where God could be worshipped. God didn't allow him to do that, but his son Solomon did. And where his son built the temple, it also began to be called Zion. And so eventually it became a synonym for the city of Jerusalem. Mount Zion was a synonym almost for the city of Jerusalem, which was the capital of God's people, the place where the throne was and where the temple was. And so that's the background of what we're looking at here. But what he wants us to see is, as Christians, we've not come to the earthly Jerusalem, but we've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, what the earthly Jerusalem, in a sense, represents. Now notice a few things about this city, very quickly. If you go up just a little bit in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 10, you'll read about Abraham and it says this, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. This is what he was ultimately looking for. This is what Abraham was looking for by faith, looking forward to by faith. And then a little bit later in Hebrews, we'll see in the next few weeks, in 13.14, Hebrews 13.14, it says this, For here, meaning on this earth, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Talking about what we're talking about here in our text. But my favorite reference to what we're talking about here is found in Revelation 21, 2 through 4. Listen to these words. John says, And I saw the holy city... New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place 
of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's what's being spoken about here. This is what we have come to if we have come to Jesus, if we have trusted in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. This is ours. This is ours. And there's a sense in which we can enjoy it now. This heavenly Jerusalem. Now we still have death and we still have sorrow. But we have this hope and there's a sense in which we can experience as citizens of this city the pleasures, the sweetness, going back to my illustration of now and laters, the sweetness of what God has in store for those who love him. So we have come, if you believe in Jesus, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Next, he says, innumerable angels in festive gathering. Innumerable, you can't number them, there's so many, innumerable angels in festal gathering. Again, this speaks about a festive occasion. He's still talking about the city that is ours. Not only are there humans who are going to ultimately and forever inhabit this heavenly Jerusalem that's going to actually come down to the earth in the future, but angels will also be there. Angels will be there. And what we need to understand is, and I think this is one of my favorite parts of this text, is this. We, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, if we have faith in Jesus Christ, we are going to celebrate forever with brothers and sisters in Christ, but also with the angels. This is a reality. This is not a myth. This is not something that's just made up. Innumerable angels. We don't worship angels. We won't in the future worship angels. But we do worship God with or like the angels. And we will worship God with and like the angels. So when we gather here, I want you to think about something this morning that's really helpful and cosmic and will give you a bigger picture of what's happening this morning. As we've gathered here this morning, do you understand that we are joining with the angels who are festive? They're happy. They're rejoicing, and we are rejoicing in the same one that they are rejoicing in, and we are joining them, in a sense, in their worship. And guess what? The Bible also says that they join us in our worship when we come together. Let me tell you where it says that. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 gives some instructions. Paul gives instructions for women in worship. And then he says that they should follow these instructions, quote, because of the angels. What does that imply? It implies that angels are present and are observant when God's people gather for worship. We join them when we gather for worship, and they join us when we gather for worship. 
My wife used to be asked to sing in church services, and one of the songs that she was quite often asked to sing said this, we are standing on holy ground, and I know that there are angels all around. Let us praise Jesus now. We are standing in his presence on holy ground. That's what's happening this morning. What's happening is bigger than what you can see with your physical eyes. You see, Mount Sinai was perceivable but unapproachable. We've come to Mount Zion, which is unperceivable with our senses but is approachable. We are interacting with angels when we worship the Lord Jesus. Then he says number three. He mentions the third thing about this city. The assembly, he calls it, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now that phrase is full, but I'm going to go very fast. The assembly, it could also be translated the church. Same word. The assembly or the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. This is talking about the universal church. That is, all people in all places and throughout all of time who have believed God revealed in Jesus Christ. The universal church. We're a part of that. Those that we read about in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith Abraham, by faith Noah. So we're a part of that if we've trusted in Jesus Christ. We are a part of this universal assembly And notice the phrase, of the firstborn. Do you know what that means? Every Christian is like a firstborn son before God. Every Christian is like a firstborn son. Now, we've talked about the firstborn son. We did last week, remember, when we talked about Esau, who sold his birthright, which was his because he was the firstborn son, for some stew, for some soup. For Esau... He had been given, because he was the firstborn to his father, he had been given the privileged position of being the firstborn. He would get the majority of the inheritance. He would take his father's place as the head of the family after his father died. It was quite an important honor in the Old Testament to be the firstborn. This text is saying that because of our union with Jesus through faith, who is the ultimate firstborn, We are all before God, male and female, we are all like firstborn sons. We get the inheritance, the inheritance that Jesus has promised us, and all of the honor and all of the glory that goes along with that. And notice it says we are enrolled in heaven. That means our name is written in heaven if we believe in Jesus Christ. By the way, it's been written in heaven forever if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. That means you're a citizen, literally. That's the idea. A role that contains the names of the citizen of this, citizens of this city called the New Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. So we are a part of this. And folks, let me just say this. We are a part of this assembly, this universal church, and therefore we should be a part of a local church. You should have your name on two rolls if you're a Christian. It already is on a membership roll that's kept in heaven if you've believed in Jesus Christ. But 
the way people see God's church is in local churches. And they experience God's people in local churches. And that's what God intends for us. This church is an embassy of that assembly, the universal church. We are a local expression of that. And this is where Christians should be or some gospel-believing church. It's not without significance. And then number, what is it, four? He says, you've come to God, to the judge of all. We can't see God, right? In Hebrews 11, it says the one that comes to God must believe that he is because we can't see him, but we still by faith see him and we've come to him. Now, to come to the judge of all people might sound scary, but it doesn't to those of us who've trusted in Jesus because the judge is our father. The judge is our father because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And so we don't fear coming to him. We don't fear coming before him. And we can come into his presence now, and we will in a greater sense experience his presence in the future. And then he says this next, the spirits of righteous men or the righteous made perfect. What is this referring to? This is referring to those who have died, who on earth had faith. They lived their life and they had faith in the God revealed in Jesus Christ and then they died and now they are spirits, meaning they're no longer in their body. The New Testament says that's what happens when we die. As believers, we're absent from the body. We're present with the Lord. That's what's being referred to here. The spirits of the righteous, people on earth who were made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. We believe the righteousness of Jesus is credited to us. We're righteous in that sense. But when we die, our spirits leave our bodies and we experience the presence of God and we are made perfect in the sense that we never sin again. One of my favorite lines from an old hymn says this, till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. That's what's happening here. A spirit made perfect, saved to sin no more. So those who've died before us are described here. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. And then he says next, And I left off some of this on your outline, so let me give you the rest of it. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, is the next phrase. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And this is really the crescendo of the book of Hebrews, right here in these next phrases. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Notice that it's the name Jesus that's used. He doesn't say Christ, he doesn't say Jesus Christ, he doesn't say Lord Jesus Christ, he just says Jesus here. And I think that's not without significance because Jesus is the one name that points more than any other to the humanity and the condescension of Jesus Christ. Jesus was God the Son and then he condescended to become Jesus, a man, a real man, fully God still but fully man. And he is the mediator of a new covenant As God and as man, he can be the mediator between God and man. And that's what he's done. He has made a way for us to be saved. The new covenant, here we see it, in contrast to the old covenant that was given at Sinai. And then finally, 
The last of the seven says this, the sprinkled blood. We've come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, what's being talked about here? He's talking about Jesus' blood, the blood of the new covenant that he's just been talking about in connection with Jesus. You see, Jesus' blood was shed on the cross, but we've seen already in the book of Hebrews that that blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat in heaven. In the Old Testament, the high priest on the Day of Atonement would go in and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat in the tabernacle and then later in the temple for the forgiveness of sins or to represent the forgiveness of sins. But that all pointed to what Jesus would do and has done now. He has shed his blood. His blood has been sprinkled on the mercy seat in heaven. That means before God and you and I are able to be reconciled to God and to come to God because of what Jesus has done. Now what does he mean here when he says in these last few words, the sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel? What does he mean? I think he means this. By the way, Abel was the first Old Testament example of faith in the book of, or in chapter 11 of the book we're in, the book of Hebrews. He was the first of all of those people that are named in Hebrews chapter 11. And so he comes back to that here and mentions Abel's blood. What's he talking about? Abel was killed by his brother Cain because Cain was so jealous of the fact that God accepted Abel's sacrifice and didn't accept his sacrifice. And out of jealousy and anger, Cain killed Abel. And in Genesis chapter 4 verse 10, we're told this, that Abel's blood, God says this, Abel's blood cries out to me from the ground. Abel's blood cries out to me from the ground. And what was it crying? What was it saying? It was saying, avenge this. Avenge my blood. That's what was being said. Abel's blood pleads for revenge but the blood of Jesus is a better word because what does the blood of Jesus plead for? It pleads for peace. Jesus' blood cries out, peace, forgive. Jesus died so that we could be at peace with God. We deserve the wrath of God for our sins. We deserve the vengeance of God because of our sins, because we've broken his law. But Jesus' blood cries out for peace. And it's through the blood of Jesus that we are forgiven and that we can come and have come, if we believe, and will come further and more fully in the future, will come, if we believe, in the blood of Jesus. I was reading this week a sermon by Spurgeon on this text. And this was a poem or a song, I'm not sure which, that he quoted, and I want to end with this. Blood has a voice to pierce the skies. Revenge the blood of Abel cries. But the dear blood of Jesus slain speaks peace as loud from every vein. Isn't that beautiful? The blood of Jesus speaks a better word. And it says... Peace. Jesus died so that we could have peace with God. Some of you are here this morning.
and you have not yet trusted in Christ and his blood, his death, his sacrifice for your sin as the only hope for you to be brought into God's presence and to experience this eternal city with angels and those who've believed who've gone before and all who ever have and ever will believe who will be raised when Jesus returns from the dead. You can't experience God with your five senses. You can't experience heaven with your five senses right now. But faith is a spiritual sixth sense. It gives us the ability to see what is invisible and to believe these things. There is a God. There are myriads of angels. There is a holy city where there's no more death and where there's no more suffering and where there's no more pain. And we are there already in a sense if we've trusted in Jesus and will be there because we've trusted in Jesus and experienced it in all of its fullness. But I want to invite you this morning if you're not one who could say, I have come to this. I've come to Jesus. I've trusted in him for my salvation, for my forgiveness. I want to invite you today to do that. From the bottom of your heart to say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I believe. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and I'm putting my trust in him. I'm coming to you. I'm coming to these things that I can't see with my eyes, with my senses. I can't touch these things or see these things, but I believe Help my unbelief. Let's bow. And let's pray. Father, it's so easy for us because of this physical world that we live in to believe that that's all there is and to think or assume that that's all there is. And yet, God, we know that there is another realm, that there is a heavenly dimension where God you the judge of all where you are where your son Jesus Christ is now where angels are where those who have believed and gone before us and all of those who believe today and in the future will go and we will experience and can have in all of its fullness one day No more death, no more sorrow, no more grief, no more pain. And I pray today that there are those that you will give grace to this morning who will have their eyes open to see and really believe that these things are real even though we can't see them. And So I pray for that. And I pray for those of us who believe that these things would be more vivid to us, more evident to us, just as real to us as the things that we can touch and taste and see and hear and that we would live by faith. Father, do what only you can do this morning. Work in the hearts of your people and in the hearts of those who are here who have not yet trusted in you. Would you open their eyes to see and call them and cause them to come to you and to trust in Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.